here. This is a monthly get-together where we have conversations about theology and culture. And so our goal with this time is to help you guys um, develop your minds and um, to help you guys engage the culture and begin to not just feel Christian, not just um, act Christian, but think Christianly. And I think in the culture that we live in today, as it becomes more and more complex, we need to be Christians who know how to think um, and know how to apply the word of God to our culture. And so I'm super excited that you guys are here tonight. And if you weren't here last semester, we just kind of talked big picture. We talked about what does it mean to think Christianly in your life? What does it mean to develop a biblical worldview? And what are some of the competing worldviews that we that we deal with in our culture. This semester, we're gonna get a lot more practical. And so Kristen and I got together and we talked about um, just some ideas for this semester. So we've got five roundtables this semester and we're gonna talk about the five questions that are most asked of the Christian faith. So what are the five questions that skeptics or that people that are wrestling with Christianity and what does it mean? What are those five questions? And so. Um, you don't need to jot this down, but if you want to, you can. The first question we're going to address tonight is, can we trust the Bible? And we'll definitely get into that in a minute. Uh, the second month, February, I think we're meeting in February. We're not. That's why we're meeting tonight. That's right. So March, we're going to talk about how can a good God allow so much suffering and pain? Um, that is a common critique question of Christianity that we need to have an answer for the third uh, roundtable is, is Jesus the only way? And uh, actually, we only have four. And the fourth roundtable, are science and faith compatible? And uh, Lonnie, I know you're going to love that one. Lonnie's our resident uh, scientist, so he's going to love that. Speaking of Lonnie, does somebody have a birthday today? <laughs> Lonnie's the man. So I've got a book giveaway for the birthday boy. Does anybody else have a birthday? Today, sorry, <laughs> got my sarcastic table over there. Yeah, I got a birthday. Lonnie, this is yours. This is Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. Great book. So that's yours, buddy. Yeah, happy birthday. Okay, so go ahead and grab the handout. I want to walk you through this real quick, and then we're going to dive in uh, because we don't have a lot of time together. So this first page, front and back, is just... For your benefit, we're talking about the Bible tonight, so I just wanted you to have a resource where you can um, refer to. This is how the Bible's organized and broken down, um, and then just some little notes that I put down at the bottom as to why it's broken down this way. And then on the back, it's the New Testament. So that's just something that if y'all want to look through, and uh, that's, that's for you guys. But the next page is the important one for tonight. Can we trust the Bible? We're going to ask Four questions, and Kristen and I are going to team teach tonight, so I'm super excited. Um, she's going to jump in, and so the first question we're going to address is, what does the Bible say about itself? Second question, what does Jesus say about the Bible? The third question is, is the Bible really inerrant? And then the fourth one is, who decided which books to include in the Bible? So that's kind of the big picture of tonight. We're going we're gonna to talk about the first two questions, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A as a group. So we're not going to do small group discussion. We're just going to jump into group Q&A. So as you're listening to us and as we go through the, the slides, jot down some questions you may have. Jot down some little comments here in the spaces provided. And, uh, and after we cover these first two questions, we will jump into some Q&A. So one more little caveat. 
Um, last time we met with the round table, we had some pretty good back and forth. And I loved it. Like I left thinking, what a great night. This is exactly what I want. I want to have discussions. I want to have some friendly debate. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ here. We should be able to do that. But I talked to some of you later in the week, and y'all were horrified by the back and forth that, that happened. Scared to death. Thankful that, you know, I didn't call on you. I, I'm okay with the back and forth. If you disagree, let's talk about it. Let's be respectful about it. But this is, this is all about trying to help you guys Think Christianly about what we're talking about, not just listen to what we're saying and do exactly what we say, but let's, let's dialogue, let's talk about it. So number one, what does the Bible say about itself? We're asking the question, can we trust the Bible? And so we're going to go through these slides over here, so we'll go ahead and get those up on the screen. And this first part, I, I just want you to jot down as we go through, you can go to the next, next slide. This is a great little quote from uh, E.J. Young who wrote a book on inerrancy. The Bible, according to its own claims, is is breathed from God. To maintain that there are flaws or errors in it is the same as declaring that there are flaws or errors in God himself. And then John Murray, um, who's a famous theologian in the 20th century, he's passed away. But if the Bible does not witness to its own infallibility, then we have not the right to believe that it is infallible. So as we start tonight, let's look at what the Bible says about itself. So if I were you, I would just jot down the verses that we go through because I'm going to go through five or six, and then you can go back later on and look at it in more detail. But the first thing is, is uh, it's Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So This is just clear from from the Old Testament that God does not lie, and man is fallible and man lies. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And that that number seven in the Bible uh, communicates perfection. God's word is perfect. It's pure. It's holy. It's set apart. It's not like any other book in the Bible. uh, Excuse me. It's not like any other book in the world. The Bible is altogether different than every other book. It's pure. Continue on. Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. And then Matthew 24, 35 in the New Testament, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They're they're eternal. And that's an important point because sin, this world is filled with sin, and sin at some point will stop. God will return, God will bring judgment, and everything that is sinful, everything that is corrupt will go away, but God's word will last forever. 2 Samuel 7, 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And then Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. I'll give you just a second to jot those down. You know, the, the, the Bible is 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in different locations, different occupations, farmers and shepherds and government officials and prophets. And, and, and all of these books and all these authors are communicating the same message, which, which is that, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. And it's unified and it's true and the God that we serve that, that inspired the writing is, is pure and holy and without corruption. So let's keep moving on. 
2 Timothy 3.16. This is a passage that many of you probably know. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. Not just parts of it, not just the parts that we like in the gospels, you know, like love your neighbor as yourself and, and forgive your enemies and the things that we think are, are, uh, are good, but all scriptures breathe out by God. And then John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophets in the Old Testament, the writers of the Bible, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit because God inspired them to write his word. And I don't want to get into details on this, but there's, there's really two different revelations that God has given us. There's general revelation, and that's just the world around us. When we look at the mountains, we, we see the beauty and the greatness and the awesomeness of the mountains, and it should point our direction to God. We see a beautiful sunset. It should communicate God. None of us are without excuse because the world is, is communicating who God is. But there's also special revelation, and that's the Bible. And God has chosen to speak to us through language, through words, through propositions. So how did he do that? How did he make sure that, that, that those words were perfect and not corrupted? Well, he inspired holy men to write the Holy Scriptures. Let's keep moving on. Just a few more. This is uh, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. And once again, just jot down the passage. You can look at it in detail later. But I, I just, it's going to be heavy on Scripture, these first two points. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So how do Christians become born again? Through the imperishable word of God preached to us or read to us. And then at verse 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter is not just talking about the Old Testament, but he's talking about the good news about who Jesus is. That good news that's preached to us is the uncorruptible, incorruptible word of God. That's amazing. Let's keep going. Is there another one? Yeah. Peter again, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It was men inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words of God. Go ahead and keep going. Okay. So before Kristen jumps into her section, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is clear and unified that the words that are contained in that Bible in front of you are the word of God. And God cannot lie and God is holy and perfect and his word is uncorruptible and his word is worthy of all of our respect and all of our submission. And here, here's a big point, guys, before we transition. All of us have a certain authority that we live our life by. So I wanna ask you a question. How do you determine what is true and false? How do you determine what is good and bad? 
all of us make decisions on what is true and false and good and bad based on what our ultimate authority is. And so for some of you, your ultimate authority is your own experience. So you believe that you shouldn't date this way because you had a bad experience. And because of that, you believe that's not the right way to date. Okay? Based on your experience. Or you believe, when it comes to sex outside of marriage, that it doesn't make sense to you that waiting until you get married would be the wise thing to do. Because don't you need to try out? You got to try out the car. What if you're incompatible? <laughs> what, if, what if things don't work out? My older brother told me that one time. We got in a conversation. He's like, man, don't you have to test drive? And I was like, where did you get that from? Um, but a lot of people think that way. Why do they say that? Because the worldly wisdom says, of course that makes sense. And so those people, are their ultimate authority is not the word of God. They might say they believe the Bible, but their ultimate authority is their own feelings about these different situations. For some people, maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church. What's the ultimate authority in the Catholic Church? The church. Tradition and, and papal proclamations, the Pope. That is the ultimate authority, and they teach you how to interpret the Bible. The Bible's not the ultimate authority. So what is the ultimate authority in your life? I'm telling you, the Bible is the only book that is worthy of your ultimate allegiance and submission. Because it's the only words that are incorruptible and true and holy and right and imperishable and pure. And so what, what is your authority? That's something to think about. But the Bible is clear that this is God's word. And now Kristen's going to talk about point number two, if you're following along in your notes. So what does Jesus have to say about the Bible? How does he think about the Bible? Yeah. So um, I know a lot of people have... If you've got the Bible with like the red letters in it, you know, like you automatically turn to those red letters. It means that's what Jesus was saying. Um, if, like we talked about, the Bible, all of it is the word of God, then it actually all is equally as important, red letter or black. Um, but we still want to know what Jesus said and what he believed about the Bible um, because he is our Lord. Um, so we just have four points that we're going to look at here. Um, first of all, he believed that the scriptures were useful. Um, if you look at those red letters, you are going to see him quoting scripture constantly. Um, by the way, by scriptures, when we're talking about what Jesus used, that's the Old Testament. So in your Bible, the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. Um, that's what he had and what he referenced. Um, he quotes that Bible in most situations that he's in. Uh, we see him at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. Every response he gives Satan is a quote from Deuteronomy. Uh, when he needed to stand up to this temptation, he uses the word of God to help him. At the end of his life, um, when he is on the cross, he quotes Psalm 31, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the first line of that Psalm. Um, in his most extreme suffering, um, he saw scripture as useful to help him to express his feelings, to cry out to the Father with the word of God. And then one other thing, before he ascended to heaven, one of the last things he did was, there's a story in Luke where he's walking with two men who don't recognize him yet, they think he's dead, um, and he teaches them the scriptures. Luke 24, 27 says, 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then a few verses later with his disciples in Luke 24, 44, um, he said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, that was a way of referencing the entire scripture as a whole. So we see that he clearly believed the scriptures are useful in pointing to the Messiah, letting people know what the Messiah would be like, what he would do, what he meant to them. Okay, second thing, he believed the scriptures were historically accurate. In many discussions throughout the Gospels, he references historical events. I have a bunch of them I'm just going to say here. You might not try to write them all down, but we can look them up later if you want. He talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. He talks about Abel, Noah and the flood, Sodom, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the burning bush, David, Solomon, Elijah, Zechariah, Manna, Lot's wife, the bronze serpent, and Jonah. That's just a small list of the things he references. And he, when he talks about them in all these situations, he talks about them as real history. He doesn't talk about them as fables or you know, just stories that are helpful. Like he has parables, um, but these he talks about as historically accurate. And um, he uses them in a way to support his teaching that just implies the historicity of all of those things. Um, he also believes that the scriptures should be taught and studied. This is what Jesus did constantly. Um, we know that he had a whole bunch of it memorized. He had clearly studied it his whole life. Uh, we also we see him a lot in the temple, in crowds, with his small group of disciples, always expounding on passages of scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is a big, long sermon based on scripture. He cites a lot of teachings, he elaborates on them, he tells his followers what they mean. And we also see that when people ask him questions, um, a lot of the times he responds with, by saying, haven't you read such and such? Um, or haven't you heard, didn't you know? He expects that everybody would have been studying them and he believes that they're worth studying, he believes that they are able to be understood and clearly he believes they're worth teaching to others. So the last thing we see is that he believes that the scriptures were worth submitting your life to. He has already shown when he's walking with the men in Luke that he believed that the whole scriptures pointed to him. So he knew these scriptures, he knew the prophecies that talked about his birth, his life, and his horrific death, um, and also the fact that he would come again. And he submitted to that, to the point of dying. Um, he also, we know that he did not sin. So he submitted himself to all of the law that's written in scripture. Um, when he's tempted and he quotes scripture to Satan, um, he knows that Satan is tempting him to do things that are contrary to the scriptures, and yet he chooses to submit to the authority of the scripture in his life. Um, so, we see, he believed, again, they're useful in temptation, in suffering, in living, in teaching. He believed it was historically accurate. He believed it was authoritative and 100% worth basing your life on. Um, we also know in John 7:16, he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
And he says similar things to that in John 8, 28 and 12, 49 also. Um, so we know that Jesus believed that what he taught and believed and said is not even just from him, it's from God. So he also believed that the things he believed about scripture are the things that God believes about scripture. And then we also know that he tells us to follow, follow him. And so he wants us to believe these things about scripture too. Yeah, I mean, um, we're gonna open up to Q&A right now, but I, I just, you made some really uh, great points. We say we're followers of Christ um, and we say we're people of the book. And so, although we just went through a list of scriptures that you couldn't possibly keep up with all of them, the reason we did that is because we wanted to support why we believe the Bible's trustworthy. And where would we go to support that? We'd go to the living word of God, Jesus Christ, and the written word of God, the Bible itself. And so, um, whatever you believe, you, you have to be able to back up your claims with scripture. So, before we jump into the next two points, what questions do you have? And if you have a question that refers to something later on, we might just have you hold on to that and then we'll um, talk about it later. But Christine's gonna go around and if you have a question, you can just stand up and, uh, and ask it. So what questions do you have about what the scripture says about itself or what Jesus says about the scriptures? Yeah, uh, can you go back to the scriptures you quoted for? Yeah. Which um, ones? Go back. Yeah, I guess this one works. Okay. Um, my issue with this is that, is it possible that we're confusing graphe, which is scripture Writing. up there, versus yeah. logos or rhema, which are being two different things? I mean. Back then, 2,000 years ago, writing was not as big of a deal as, as we think it is nowadays. That is, the, is it actually saying this about itself, or is it saying the word being Jesus, not the word being the Bible? Yeah. Um, do you all understand the question? Okay, so you have uh, graphe, which I don't, I don't know which one. Are you talking about the John 10, 35, uh, that scripture? Second uh, Timothy is graphe. Okay, so 2 Timothy, Graphe, and I'm sure all writing John is breathed would. out by God. But what he's asking is you have certain parts of the Bible in Greek use the word logos for word, and certain parts of the Bible use Graphe for writing. And uh, could it be possible that they're referring to something outside of the Bible? Am I right, understanding right. correctly? Right, like when, so the one that comes to mind, for example, Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active. Maybe it's not speaking about the text of scripture, but Jesus says the living word. And yeah. so some of, I'm not saying that I don't think it's No, you inspired, bring up a great question. As if these are, are these valid defenses considering linguistic variants? Yeah, you bring up a great question. Um, historically in the church, you talk about the, uh, the written word and the living word. Who's the living word? It's, it's Jesus Christ. And in John one, he says, in the beginning was the word, Lagos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so we have this word, which is Jesus Christ. And it makes sense because the Father, none of us, have, nobody has ever seen the Father. Jesus is the representation of the Father. He's the perfect image of the invisible God, I think Paul says in Colossians. And so Jesus 
speaks. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And so where I would, where I would respond to that is that the Bible is the written word that is confirming the living word. All the Bible is from Genesis to Revelation is a document that is pointing to the living word as the answer to, to life and to salvation and to the meaning and purpose of why God created the world. God created the world to glorify himself in his son, Jesus Christ. That wasn't plan B. God didn't have a plan A and then Adam and Eve messed that up. So he's like, well, what are we going to do, guys? And Jesus is like, ah, I guess I'll go, but I really don't want to. The Bible says that was the plan from the beginning, from before the beginning, was for Jesus to come in human flesh, to die on the cross, and to be lifted up and glorified. And so that's the purpose of existence. That's the purpose of the Bible is to point to the living word. Now, in the Old Testament, there's over 4,000 times where it says God said. And my argument would be that what God said, like in Genesis 1, when he spoke the world into existence, he, he spoke the world into existence. I believe the, the written word that God spoke has the same power, even though he spoke it through fallible human beings. So I don't make a distinction between his spoken word and his written word. That's how I would answer that. I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That's but awesome, too. Yeah. Um, very good question. And we'll see afterwards if that's satisfactory for you. Um, any other questions? We got one over here, Rachel. question. I was wondering, how do we talk to people who don't necessarily believe that the Bible is true? Because I know y'all probably have talked to people before that they don't believe the Bible's true. And so if you tell them all these things that we're saying, that's a hard, that can be a hard conversation. Yeah. I was just curious if y'all were going to speak about that at all. Yeah, just like, we definitely can. That's a great question. Do yeah. you want to open it and I'll close it? Or do you want me to? You can say. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So what would you say to someone who goes up to you and is like, okay, Great story, Tyler. That's, that's neat that you think that's your authority, but it's not my authority. Um, I would first of all say that, you know, we, we all, you know, I would agree with him that, yeah, at least to acknowledge that we all have an authority. And my next question would be, so what is your authority that, uh, that guides your life? What is your authority that you put, you know, that you put your trust in to help you distinguish between right and wrong and things like that? Another, the second thing I would do, so I would, I would ask them what's their authority. The second thing I would do is um, I would probably spend most of my time asking questions and trying to get them, and, and this is going to sound weird coming out, but I want to try to get them to doubt their own authority. So I'd ask them what their authority is. Number two, I'd ask them, I, I would try to get them to begin to doubt their own authority. Now, why on earth would I do that? That sounds mean. If I really believe that the Bible's the ultimate authority, then whatever else people put their hope in to be a, a, a good guide for their life is gonna be um, less than the Bible. And so if this person's putting their hope in, in reason, well, our, our minds have been affected by the fall and reason is ultimately gonna let them down. If they're putting their hope in their own experience, like I'm just gonna follow my heart and I'll get to where I wanna be. I wanna cast doubt on that as the best option. Now here's the problem when it comes to talking to somebody who, who's not a believer. 
I don't think you can convince somebody that the Bible is the word of God by just really good arguments, really good argumentation. I believe that if the Holy Spirit doesn't witness to that and affirm that in your heart, that there's no amount of arguing I can do to get them to go, oh, that's a great point. I'm going to start believing that this is the inspired word of God. And, you know, I can't argue them into believing that. That's a work of the Spirit. What I can do is just have a great conversation, ask questions, be respectful, and, and be loving, and, and help them understand that maybe their authority isn't as strong as they might think it is. Yeah, and then I would kind of end that conversation by just saying, hey, would you be willing to give it a shot? You know, because ultimately that is. If it's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit through the reading of the Word, then just say, have you ever read it? Would you read some of it and see if it fits with what you see in the world, see if it fits what it's, you know, what you see in your heart and in your life and see if they'd be willing to give that a shot too. Great point because the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to, to produce change in someone's life. So you want to get them to be reading the word. You want to invite them to come hear the preaching of the word because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to change people's hearts. Could you stand up? Uh, so what about turning to the numerous instances of fulfilled prophecy? Uh, do you find those to be effective? Absolutely. Um, one off the top of my head, Isaiah 53. I, I can't remember the details, but there, there is a long list of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah that's confirmed in the, uh, the life of Jesus. And we're talking about a huge gap in time. Um, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries between that prophecy and Jesus coming to earth. And there's no way that Jesus could, you know, manipulate things to try to falsely affirm those prophecies. It's, it's amazing. You know, a, a good example is um, when Jesus was born, uh, King Herod had a uh, census taken. And because that census was, was, uh, was taken... Jesus and his family had to go back to Egypt. They had to kind of flee because Herod was trying to find the Messiah and have him killed. And he heard that the Messiah would be from Bethlehem. And so an, an angel came to, to Joseph and to Mary and said, you need to flee to Egypt. So they went to Egypt. And I think it's Micah 5 says, out of Egypt, my son will come or something along those lines. What is it? Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, my son will come. And so how did that happen? God orchestrated it for Jesus to be coming out of Egypt just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament. So there are dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that were confirmed in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Honestly, we didn't have time to go through all of them, but you can quickly go online and just run down the list of those. Hold on one second before we get to Patrick. Any other questions? Yes, Hillary. How can we be certain that when the Bible is referencing scripture, especially Jesus, that it's talking about the whole Bible in its entirety and not just the Old Testament or like the certain book that it's in? Great question. There are um, several, there are several instances where Jesus refers to um, the law, uh, the prophets, and um, the Psalms. The Psalms. He says the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Historically, Jews, when they said the law, the Psalm, and the prophets, they were talking about 
the whole Old Testament. And surprisingly, the Old Testament that they had back then is the same Old Testament that we had now. And so they use that phrase when Jesus says, all of the Old Testament is pointing to me. And he said, all of the law, the prophets and the Psalms are talking about me. He's saying everything from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament is, is pointing to me. And so when you see that phrase in the New Testament, they're referring to the whole Old Testament, not just parts. When they talk about the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament because Jews referred to the first five books as the law or the Pentateuch is another way that they talk about that. Patrick's got a grin on his face. It's making me nervous. What do you got, Patrick? So going back to Hosea 11 and Matthew yeah. 2, I mean... I've looked at that a couple of times, and I... So have, read Hosea. Read the part okay. that's pertinent to what we're talking about. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk, to, I who took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Okay, and then... And then Matthew... I think you're about to bring up an interesting point that is very important in talking about inerrancy, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, he okay, Matthew two fifteen. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken out by the Lord through the prophets. Out of Egypt I called my son. Yeah. So there. Um, <laughs> and, and this is a this is a very deep theological conversation. So the best way I can talk about that is the New Testament authors use the Old Testament prophecies in ways that maybe Old Testament Jews wouldn't, that didn't believe in the Messiah. And oftentimes what that's called is, is a typology. So there are certain things that happen in the Old Testament that are a type of Christ. So the serpent that uh, was, was the bronze serpent that if the Israelites would look at that serpent, they would be saved. And the serpent was lifted up high above everyone and they were saved. That was a type of Jesus who would come, be lifted up, and all who would believe in him would be saved. Now, a, a Jewish person would not make that same connection. But the New Testament Jews, when they saw who Jesus was and what he came to do and began to see him as the Messiah, it changed the way they looked at the Old Testament. And Jesus was constantly frustrated with New Testament Jews that weren't understanding that the Old Testament was pointing to him. And so even though in the direct context of Hosea 11, it's not talking about Jesus, you know, having a census and Herod going to Egypt, it's a type of Jesus come, it's a, it's a type that's pointing to Jesus. So if what that does it mean makes to sense. fulfill prophecy then? I mean, because we, we treat prophecy as if, like yeah. you mentioned uh, Isaiah 53 before, the suffering servant. I mean, that one seems to be a little easier to, yeah. to correlate. But Hosea 11 doesn't seem to, or another one when they were talking about Herod killing babies and uh, it was quoting Jeremiah 30-something, yeah. which has no messianic undertones. So is it like what what prevents Christians or like anyone from just deciding that something in the Old Testament you can Well, the twist. first grid as Christians today to go through is how do the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament? So a big point is how does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament? So before we start 
speculating on what the Old Testament is saying, we need to see how the New Testament authors talked about that event in the Old Testament. And Kristen already talked about how Jesus talked about so many different stories in the Old Testament. And so if you want to understand the meaning of those stories, look to how Jesus interpreted them. Look to how New Testament authors interpreted them. I, I know that's not a, a fully satisfying answer for you. One last part okay. is what I was kind of getting at. The people that don't believe that Christianity is true, this, that might be an acceptable answer to us in this room. But if they already aren't believing, how will they believe that paradigm when we say that, oh, the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus, but then we have to make these it's, it's logical leaps. It's 100% a work of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to teach the Word of God. If you're a small group leader, to teach the Word of God. If you're a preacher, preach the Word of God. If you're a, a, a father or a mom who's got kids, you teach your kids the Word of God. And in teaching the Word of God, the Holy Spirit uses this inerrant Word, which we're going to get into in a minute, to point to Jesus Christ and to help people believe. This kind of piggybacks on Hillary's question uh, a little bit ago asking about how we trust uh, when it talks about Scripture affirming itself. Yeah. Okay, so we would affirm that with the Old Testament. And I think this is jumping into the canonization that you get to, so feel free to say we'll get back to this. But how do we trust the New Testament? So, like, New Testament authors are saying we believe Scripture, and, and we would recognize, oh, well, they're referencing Old yeah. Testament. Love to hear you guys talk about, even if you're going to get to it in point four, okay, well, what about New Testament Scripture? So th this is a very, these are great questions. Patrick, these are great questions. I appreciate you asking them. Um, how many of you, this is by show of hands, um, and if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see this, but um, how many of you wonder why there's certain books in the Bible and there's other books that have been left out of the Bible? How many of you at any point in time have thought, man, I wonder why and how they came about that they put these books in the Bible and other books didn't get out, you know, didn't make the cut. Um, Kristen's we'll going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll get to it. <laughs> but I promise you I'll get to that. And if we don't answer it, you know, well, you can bring up the question again. Um, any other questions before we move on? I think you'll have way more questions the second round, but we got... This isn't so much a question as uh, pointing out a couple of things. One is uh, in terms of types, uh, Passover lamb, anyone for Jesus, I mean, just like the serpent. Uh, also, and I, I think this was a big one, if you actually look not just at Jesus, but you look at a lot of the Old Testament uh, prophecies for cities that will be sacked or that will be taken and different things happening, you can actually find examples actually past the New Testament in some cases where it actually happened. One example of that is an island off of Israel in the Mediterranean that they thought for years and years it would never be taken. This was their stronghold. Well, guess what? It was predicted hundreds of years before, and Alexander the Great built an isthmus by putting stones in there for about half a year, and he took the island, and it happened just as it was prophesied. So. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting facts in the Old Testament, and... and uh types, you know, Moses is a type of Christ. Jesus is the new Moses. The old Moses had a group of people that were God's people that were in slavery to the big bad Pharaoh, and they were in bondage to Pharaoh. And then Moses, God's intermediary, came along and led God's people out of slavery into the promised land. And they crossed the, you know, the, the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea. 
So Jesus is the new Moses. We're all born into slavery to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And we can't, we can't get free of that bondage. There's nothing we can do. We're, we're chained to sin. And then Jesus, God, sends his son to lead us out of bondage to sin and into a new life, into a life that is um, full of forgiveness and ultimately into the, the promised land that's awaiting us in the future. So that's one example of a type. David and Goliath. Uh, David was the representative of the people of Israel, and they were scared of Goliath, this, this enemy of God and his people. And little David, the shepherd boy, comes and he slays the giant on behalf of God's people. And that is a type of Christ who comes and slays and defeats the our, our big bad giant enemy of death. You know, Jesus comes and fights for us and defeats death for us so that we can be set free. So there's all, it really makes the Old Testament come to life when you begin to look for how it's pointing to Christ. So let's, let's keep rolling. Did you, we got one more question and then we'll keep rolling. Christine was so blown away by that new Moses thing that she <laughs> daydreaming. So how would you answer someone who says it's circular reason to use the Bible to prove itself? I believe that when it comes to the ultimate authority, and that's a, that's a, that's a common um, you know, rebuttal, is that you're just making a circular argument. Uh, you believe the Bible is God's word because the Bible says it's God's word, and on and on you go. But you can, you can do that with anything. You know, I believe that reason is the ultimate authority. Why do you believe that? Because it seems reasonable to me to have reason be the ultimate authority. You know, I believe logic is the ultimate authority. Well, why do you believe that? Because it seems logical. Anything that's the ultimate authority, that's the only thing that can support it as the ultimate authority. You can't have a lesser authority support that. So if you believe in just the material world, then, you know, if that's your ultimate authority, it's circular. Because the material world says that there's nothing outside of it that's real, you believe nothing outside of it's real. It's just so... You know, circular arguments are fallacies in the rules of logic unless it has to do with the, the final ultimate authority. Um, so, yeah. Okay, number three. This is a uh, huge issue in Christian circles. We can keep, keep going on that. Okay, um, is the Bible really inerrant? Okay, what does it mean for the Bible to be inerrant? It's, um, it simply means that all of the scriptures are without error. There are no errors in the Bible. None. Um, this is an important qualifier, which may bother some of you guys, but on that first point, this definition does not describe any and all Bibles that we use. Instead, it is describing only the original manuscripts or autographs. Wayne Grudem, who, if you don't have a systematic theology, I'd recommend you get it. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture and the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible tells the truth about everything it talks about. So there's another word called infallible. And there's a lot of people that like the word infallible because if infallible means without deception. So inerrant means without error, infallible means without deception. And what many of those people do is they, 
they say that when the Bible's talking about faith and things related to your faith, it's not gonna deceive you. But if it has errors about historical events or scientific things, that doesn't concern you. It's only concerned with, with faith and practice. And uh, I think there's huge problems with that. We'll get into that in a minute, but let's... Uh, okay, so just a few misunderstandings on inerrancy, and I'm gonna go through it quick so that we can get to the questions. But these are misunderstandings of what inerrancy means for a Christian. This is a misunderstanding. Number one, it must hold to a strict adherence to the rules of grammar if it's gonna be inerrant. We don't believe that. Just because grammatically the um, authors of the New Testament use slang or use what we would deem as, as ungrammatical sentence structure doesn't mean that it's not without error. Number two, it must not have figures of speech or use common literary genres. Um, what that means is some people think that if it's really inerrant, then God had, through the Holy Spirit, had to literally you know, guide the author's hand to put what's on the page. But you can believe in inerrancy and believe that the author's you know, use their minds and use their experiences and thought about, okay, what do I want to say? What is, you know, Paul, what should I say to the Corinthian church? They're driving me nuts. I think I'm going to say this, you know, and, and, or in the Old Testament, telling a history, you know, using that genre, you know, narrative structures. It doesn't mean that it's not inerrant because they use common genres and literary um, speech. Number three, it demands historical precision. Um, you know, when we use language, we don't always speak literally when we're talking about something that happened in the past. You know, I could say just the other day I went to this um, conference, and that might have meant, meant six months ago. So is that really just the other day? But the point is, in, in the past, so there are certain times that an author just uses a generalization when it comes to something that happened in the past and not literal, like, 10 days and three hours ago, this thing happened. So you don't have to be that precise for it to be inerrant. Number four, it demands the technical language of modern science. So we say, what a beautiful sunset. Scientifically, is that what's really happening? Is the sun going down and, and coming up, rising? No, we know that. But we, we understand what we mean when we say that. It's just... It's, it's language, and so just because there are certain parts of the Bible that doesn't use technical science language that we use in the 21st century does not mean that it's inerrant. Number five, it demands verbal exactness in the citation of the Old Testament by the New Testament. And this is to your point, Patrick. It can be inerrant and use Old Testament passages in different ways to make different points. It doesn't compromise the meaning of the Old Testament um, and the New Testament authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can use those passages to make different points. Number six, it demands that the sayings of Jesus must contain the exact words of Jesus. The Gospels are firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus. And so just because John might summarize an event that happened in Jesus' life or summarize something that Jesus said that maybe wasn't exactly like Jesus said it, said it, doesn't mean that it's not inerrant. Because we're getting an eyewitness account of what happened. As long as what John is saying about what Jesus said is not contradicting or different, then there's nothing wrong with that. Number seven, it demands an exhaustive comprehensiveness of any single account. So Mark might tell a story, and Luke might tell that same story. They might be telling the story in different ways and, and highlighting 
just certain things in that story without talking about the whole thing comprehensively. We do that all the time. Um, I might tell a story about a meeting I had the other day and highlight just a part of it, and Ben might tell the same story of a meeting and highlight a different part. It doesn't mean that those are untrue. We're just not being comprehensive. Um, number eight, it demands that the sources used by the writers are infallible and inerrant. And inerrant. So Paul, in Acts 17, when he was on Mars Hill, he quoted poets from that um, area that were not believers, were not Israelites, but he used those poets to make his point. Those poets are not infallible, but how, how Paul used it was inspired by God. So they don't have to be inspired by God. Y'all tracking with me on that? Number nine, it demands that all copies of the original autographs must be inerrant as well. This is a huge point. Um, this is a huge point we're going to get into in a minute, but, but I want you to, to hear that. Does, inerrance, does inerrancy demand that all copies of the original autographs must be inerrant as well? We're going to get into it in a minute, but I want you all to be thinking about that. So real quick, and then we'll keep moving. Uh, two, two big arguments against inerrancy. Remember, inerrancy means that we believe the Bible is without error. Everything contained in the Bible is true. It might not talk equally about everything, but everything that's in there is true. Number one, we don't have the original manuscripts. So who cares if you say the original manuscripts are inerrant? We don't have access to those. So that doesn't help me trust the Bible now if, it's, if, if we don't have the original manuscripts, which are the inerrant word of God. Okay, so... This is astounding, and, and this is across the board, scholars. For over 99% of the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts say. Of the 1% that has variations, they affect the meaning little, if at all. And then Dr. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones, who's a professor at Southern, says that the New Testament text is the best preserved text of the ancient world. We can be 99% sure that the Bible we have in front of us is the same as the original manuscripts that were written thousands of years ago. Now, how on earth could we say that? This is really cool. You can look it up online. But you see on the far left co column the authors. You've got Caesar, Plato, Thucydides, Tacitus. Um, I don't even know who that next one is. Homer, Iliad. That's a famous book that we've probably all read at some point. And then you have the New Testament. So here's what's cool. You, you see the next column, written... You see what the time period is for all of those. And then, big point, the third column, earliest fragment or copy that we have of those famous writings that we all read in school and things like that. Earliest fragment for Caesar that was 144 BC was AD 900. That's the earliest text that we have of the writings of Caesar. Plato, 427 to 347 BC, the earliest fragment we have is AD 900. On and on it goes. Look at New Testament at the bottom. A.D. 40 to 100, the earliest fragment is A.D. 125, just 25 years after the events that took place. The time span in years, we're talking about a 1,000 years for the first four. But for the New Testament, we're talking about 25 to 50 years after these events that were written about, we've got recorded fragments. 
number of manuscripts that we have today of the New Testament, 24,000. Number of manuscripts of Homer, which we've all read in school and we read it as if it's, you know, accurate to what Homer said, 643. Of that 24,000, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts written in the original Koine Greek of the New Testament. It's astounding. I, I read an article today in preparation for tonight. It was from an atheist. And he conceded that, you know, we're 99% sure of what the Bible said originally. Now, he made arguments why he still doesn't think that's impressive, but hey, go for it, buddy. For me, that's really impressive. That, that gives me confidence that I can trust that the English Bible that I'm reading is the same Bible that was, that was written originally inspired by God. Um... Second argument, that the Bible has contradictions in it. So the first argument, man, we don't even have access to the original manuscripts. And by the way, maybe it's a good thing we don't have access to that. Because what do you think would happen if we discovered the original manuscript? We're going to have Christians all over the world that are worshiping the manuscript instead of worshiping God. It would become a relic. So maybe it's a good thing that we can't find those. Second thing is the Bible has contradictions in it. Um... The first question I would ask somebody, if they asked you, well, man, the Bible has tons of contradictions, I would say, let's talk about them. Let's show me where they are and let's discuss those. And a lot of times they've never looked at it. They just heard that. You know, it's been passed down that, oh, the Bible's full of con contradictions. And their professors in, in uh, school say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. They've never really looked it up for themselves, but they just spout that out. And if you just sit down and talk with them and say, let's talk about those, a lot of times they don't even know where they are. Um, another big point is oftentimes when you're able to look at the passages in detail in the original language, you can solve the dilemma. Because the hard part is the Greek language, sometimes there's a word that doesn't translate well in English. So we've got to make a decision on how we translate it. And when we go back to the original, we realize, oh, that, that makes sense. Um, and then this is a great quote from Roger Nicole, another... Um, uh, theologian, the inerrancy of scripture is not dependent upon our ability to provide in every case a rational explanation of difficulties encountered. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have difficulties. I'm not saying that there aren't going to be things in the Bible that we don't understand and that we might never understand. What I'm saying is that that doesn't mean that they're a contradiction. It doesn't mean that they're wrong or that it, the Bible is inconsistent if we, with our finite minds, can't understand how these two passages hold up. Last one I already talked about, the Bible's only authoritative for faith and practice. Um, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scriptures God breathed and profitable for us. So the New Testament authors don't seem to think that there's just certain parts of the Bible that are inspired. They believe all of it is, even if it's, you know, talking about geography or science or it's all factual. The Bible will never contradict things that we discover in botany or chemistry or biology or history. It is infallible. So, um, okay, we, we got a question. Let me hold that real quick. Let's finish up. Okay, so if you're out in the audience tonight and you're thinking, man, I still just can't go there. I can't believe that this book that we have is actually the word of God and there's, there's got to be errors in it over all these years. 
there's two problems with that. Number one, if we deny inerrancy, how can we put our full trust in anything the Bible says? So if you concede, okay, the Bible is inerrant when it comes to faith and practice, but history, science, that is not my guide. You've opened up the door. How do you determine what is related to faith and practice and what's not? And now who's the one that's in control? You are. You become the authority. You become the one that's like, okay, I think this is true, but this is false. So I'm going to believe this and teach this, but not this. Now all of a sudden, the Bible's under your authority instead of you under the Bible's authority. So the moment you deny inerrancy is the moment that you have opened up Pandora's box for how do you, what part do you trust? Number two, denying inerrancy puts our minds in authority over Scripture because we will be passing judgment on God's word instead of God's word passing judgment on us. The bottom line is, guys, we, we grow, we learn, we change, we're molded into the image of Christ because we submit to the authority of God's word and we, we change our life, we match our life up with what God's word says, not vice versa. We don't tell God's word what it is and what it's supposed to do, we let it tell us who we are and what we're supposed to do. And I think that's the biggest problem with modern day scholarship, especially in the liberal um, wing, um, is they're, they're the ones in control. They're the ones who determine what is true and false in the Bible, and they've put their self, themselves in a position of authority, not the Bible. Do we want to take a quick break and ask questions and then go into yours? Sure. Let's do that, because I know there's questions on this. So questions, Peter. Here's one that I, I know isn't uh, an error, but it's an interesting one to look at. Uh, Genesis 6, uh, talking about Noah. Uh, you're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, animal, it's creature that moves along the ground, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then later on it says in Genesis 7, verse, uh, verses 2, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, one, one pair of every kind of unclean animal, male and its mate, also seven pairs of every kind of bird. Okay, so how in the world can we fit all the animals on there? Is that what you're talking about? Not how to fit all the animals. Oh. You've, you've got pairs, specifically two of every kind, in the first set, and then the second set, you, it ta it's talking about seven of each. So how do we yeah. handle it? Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into maybe some helpful pointers on how, what do you do when you come across a really difficult passage Let's, let's stick with questions because we're running out of time. Um, let's give an answer and then we'll go to questions. <laughs> probably the best thing to look for for Noah's Ark is probably one of the most challenged points in the Bible other than the creation story itself in the age of the earth. John Woodmerap, a Noah's Ark, a feasibility study, answers and thoroughly destroys every uh, argument against Noah's Ark. It's very scientific based. It's a very good study. It was made in the 1990s if you're very interested in that. Uh, I'd be helpful to uh, show you all that. But uh, in, in essence, it's basically genetics, and because of diversification, there actually isn't that much stuff you had to load in the ark. Because the Bible's very specific, it doesn't say water, you don't have any water animals, you don't have any bacteria, you don't have any insects that have to be loaded in there. It only says uh, land-breathing land animals that breathe through their nostrils that dwell on the earth. So it's not nearly as many species as a lot of people like to say. Interesting. We got, yeah, let's go to Amanda and then. Hey. hey. First, I'd like to say thanks for having this for us. And it's pretty cool to Absolutely. all be together. 
Um, this actually isn't necessarily a question I have about inerrancy, and this may be something that you just want to sort out with me afterwards. Okay. Uh, but I got this friend, <laughs> and he always likes to say, all truth is God's truth. And he kind of says that all the time. And I don't really, I haven't heard a very good explanation for what that means. I don't know if that's along the same lines with sola scriptura, that yeah. kind of thinking. Could you shed some light if sure. this is pertinent to where you're going? Sure. That's one of my favorite sayings, to be honest with you, because I love to read and I love to read widely. But if I'm not mistaken, and maybe Patrick can correct me because he spent time at Labrie, but wasn't Schaefer one of the big proponents that made that phrase popular among evangelicalism? So Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century evangelical theologian, and he loved to use the phrase, all truth is God's truth. Now, his argument is really why we're doing this tonight, is if all truth is God's truth, then if you are called to be a psychologist, should you fear studying psychology? Or should you fear, if you're called to, a, to be a scientist or a literature major or are, should you fear that you're going to discover a truth out there in those disciplines that contradicts Scripture? No way. Because whatever truth you find, even if it's outside of Scripture, is God's truth. Now, how do you determine whether that's true? You have to see it through the lens of Scripture. If it contradicts the Word of God, then it's not true. Or maybe you're not understanding it correctly. But just because God doesn't... You know, the Bible doesn't talk about... DNA and genetics, and it's not, it's not focused on that. That's not the purpose of the Bible to, to talk about that. But God still uh, gives people gifts in the world of genetics to discover things that actually are true. Um, and they're true because they don't contradict Scripture. And, you know, sci scientific method does play a part in how we discover knowledge outside of, you know, outside of uh, the spiritual things. And so... That's how I understand all truth is God's truth. So I love to read books from, you know, atheists. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Um, I just got a book called Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. Don't read that book for your devotional time. <laughs> It'll kill your devotional life. Um, he's a skeptic. He's not a believer. But he's also a... Uh, um, as a scientist, I can't remember what field he's in, but you can learn things from him because all truth is God's truth. So this isn't necessarily a question with inerrancy, but um, something that I learned quickly in my walk um, as a Christian was that there were several different versions of the Bible. And of course, I loved looking at the different versions and noticed that they would use different words um, sometimes even different verbs, which can really drastically change the meaning of those scriptures. Um, I want to know, what do we do with that as Christians? Because really one word question. can change an, an entire phrase, and it can almost, it won't change the meaning, but it'll change the color of what is being said, Yeah, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Are you going to talk about that? or Okay, so... You know the telephone game where I whisper something to Ben and it goes all the way around the room by the time it gets the other side, it's like, what? It's not even close. The difference between the telephone game and the Bible is that we still have 24,000 manuscripts dating all the way back to, you know, 100 years after the event, 50, uh, 50 years after the event, and we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts written in the original language. So we don't, 
we don't share the message and then lose it. We can always keep going back to the original message to make sure it's lining up. So what I do when I read a verse in one translation that's different than the other, I either go back to the original languages and there's tools online now that you guys can do that. You don't have to be seminary trained or I look at uh, commentaries of men and women that have spent their whole lives studying certain books of the Bible, studying the original languages, they're most likely going to know that that's kind of a confusing part of that book, and they're going to address it. And the way they do that normally is they'll give you three or four different views, like some people think it's this, some people think it's this, and then you have to decide which way you're going to go on that. Yeah, so there's really three different types of translations. There's a word-for-word -word translation. ESV and NASB are the most popular word-for-word. -word. So the, the panel of scholars look at every word and try to translate it word-for-word. -word. That makes for not quite as a, it's not as enjoyable to read because it can be wooden sometimes in the English language. You know, it can be a little wooden. But then there's, uh, it's called dynamic equivalent. It's, it's phrase by phrase. So they take a phrase, and that's the NIV is the most famous phrase-by-phrase phrase Bible. They take a phrase, and they try to translate it the most accurate way they can, looking at the original words, but you know, maybe needing to tweak it a little bit to make sense in our language. So that's a little easier to read. And then the, the last one is paraphrasing. The Message Bible, have you all heard of that? That's just Eugene Peterson being like, man, how should I say that? Uh, I'll say it like this, and then he made a Bible out of it. Um, that is helpful, but I wouldn't, when we're talking about trustworthy, can we trust the Bible? You can't trust that translation as much as you can trust the NASB. And you can't trust the NASB as much as you can trust the original Greek Bible, the Septuagint. Last one, and then we got to finish up. Um, this maybe not be touching necessarily inerrancy as much as interpretation, but one of the things you were saying, inerrancy is not the requirement of like the modern science or like for example, historiography, but 500 years ago, Galileo was killed for thinking that the earth revolved around the sun because the Bible said otherwise. I mean, since then we've come to realize, oh yeah, he was right. And we've had to shift the way we looked at some texts. Same thing happens with modern archaeology is realizing certain historical things in the Old Testament may not be exactly event for event how we would expect it, but then historiography comes in and says that's not how they told the past sure. anyway, so it's not an issue. So with so the, what you were going to say? Yeah, with the Galileo example, is the problem with the Bible or was the problem with the interpretation of the Bible? Right, and that's where I'm getting. It's, the problem was with our interpretation. Yeah. So my question is, at what point and how do we allow ourselves to realize that, for example, our interpretations of something right now are wrong, for example. I know Lonnie and I have some pretty stark disagreements on evolution. Like what kind of advancements in science and historiography yeah. and whatever will, will cause us to rightfully think, oh, maybe we've interpreted something wrong and have to go back to the drawing board of yeah. hermeneutics. Two things real quick, and then we'll move on. Number one, you have to start with believing that the Bible 
is trustworthy and inerrant and infallible. So, so you're not trying to figure out where the Bible's wrong. You're trying to understand this, the passage based on, you know, new discoveries, maybe new archaeology. And maybe for hundreds of years, we've interpreted this passage wrong. They discover something, and it sheds new light on this passage. The problem was never with the passage. The problem was with us interpreting it wrong. Second point, we need to be reading the Bible in community. We don't read the Bible in isolation. We have times where we read the Bible in isolation, but we should be constantly sharing what we're reading and, and what we're discovering. And if you find a place that you're struggling with, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your small group. The Bible and Christianity is not meant to be an isolated uh, religion. It's to be done in community. And so that, that's a big kind of boundary for us getting off track with our interpretations is, is running it through other godly men and women and uh, the, uh, your, your church leaders. Okay, we've got about uh, 12 minutes. Let's, sorry about that. Let's, let's close it out with Kristen. I apologize. I think that's plenty of time. Um, okay, so Ben and Tyler both already kind of brought this up, but just the question of how did we even get the Bible that we have? Who decided what books could be included? Um, <laughs> we've seen a lot of objectors um, to the faith or to trusting the Bible have historically said that there was this huge list of books out there vi all vying for a spot in the Bible and some group of people from the church in a very political process kind of picked and chose which books to include and a lot of times that, that the choosing was um, to promote one voice and one point of view and to silence and exclude um, other voices and other points of view but um, historically, that's just not what happened. A uh, much better way to explain how we ended up with the Bible we have today is that the church leaders didn't discover and decide which books were scripture, but instead they recognized the books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and gathered them together and promoted the use of them and that kind of thing. Um, the authority of scripture comes from God, not from any human institution. Uh, it's kind of one um, example I read was kind of like the difference between saying that Isaac Newton invented gravity and saying that he discovered and explained something that already existed. Um, but so how did they know how to recognize which books to include? Old Testament first. Malachi, which is the last book in your Old Testament and probably also the last one written, was written around 432 BC. And then the Septuagint, which we have, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Um, that translation happened 250 to 150 BC. Um, so that translation, already that long ago from now, included all the books that we have in our Old Testament today. Um, there's not a whole lot known about how the Jewish people officially saw these books as part of the canon, but we know that it happened close to the time of writing, and we haven't seen much dispute about which ones to include at all. Um, there is this one council in Jamnia. I don't know how to say it. Sure. Some place I've never heard of except for in this context. Um, there was a council there in AD 90, but, and some people will reference that as a time when a bunch of decisions were made, but it 
turns out they didn't make decisions about what to include in the canon. They just talked about what was already being used and um, just kind of re-agreed that it was good. Um, so then the New Testament, um, all the books, this kind of was on the chart that Tyler listed, but all the books we have in the New Testament were composed within about 60 to 70 years of Jesus' death. And it was by people who either knew him personally, um, having encountered him in some way, or who were under the direction of those people who knew him personally. Um, and then those books and letters were circulated widely and used by a whole lot of people really early on. Uh, even within scripture, you have Peter referencing Paul's letters. Um, but the first time we see the word canon, which that just means the list of all the books, the collection of all the books. The first time we see that word used in relation to a list of New Testament books um, was in 367 in a letter from Athanasius, who was this great church father. Um, and in that list, he, he listed all the books that we still have in there today. And soon after that, there was a council at Hippo in 393, and that's where they also recorded that list and talked about how, um, how those were the books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they were already, that one list was already well in place long, long ago. Um, okay, so what do all these books have in common? And when, and then there have been new books that have shown up uh, claiming to be worth including. So how were they evaluated? What was the criteria for inclusion? which that's up there. Um, okay, these are the main questions that have been asked. Was it written by a prophet or apostle? Was it written by somebody who was a spiritual leader, who spoke the word of God, who knew Jesus, had experienced him personally? Um, we see, for instance, Luke wasn't an apostle. He didn't um, follow along with Jesus like the disciples did, but he worked closely with Paul and he had eyewitness testimony for the stories that were included. So that's kind of the cutoff. There aren't, there aren't books included of people who, like many generations later, if that makes sense. Um, the point of this question is just that the book, it's not full of a bunch of hearsay that's really far removed from the actual stories and circumstances described. So the next question is, does it fit with the rest of scripture? In other words, does it say anything that contradicts other scripture? Does what it says about God and Jesus fit with what we know of his character? Um, there are some, I would say, fake gospels, and we'll talk about those a little later, but one of them tells this childhood story where Jesus was killing birds and bringing them back to life, just like a game for fun. Um, this is cruelty and childish. Um, it doesn't fit the character of what we know of things Jesus did. And uh, we also know that he never used his power just for his own games or amusement. We, he used his power to point to the message of God. So things that have stories like that that don't fit um, would not be worth including in the scriptures. Um, third question, has it been consistently accepted and used by the people of God? We have a long history of this with both the Old Testament and the New Testament, of it being used all the time. Like we said, Peter said that Paul's letters were scripture. Um, they had been, Paul's letters, other letters, the gospels had circulated through a bunch of the churches. And then we also have 
the next generation of church fathers referencing them and using them and on and on even till today. Um, the last question they used, does it display the power of God to change lives? Um, so we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but that the point of scripture is to show us who God is and how to have a relationship with him and how to live like he wants us to. And do we see a history in these books of what it says changing people's lives? And as people act on its commands and live those things out, does that point to the gospel? Um, so there are some books out there that people think maybe should be included or shouldn't be. So the first set of those is called the Apocrypha. Um, if you have or have seen a Catholic Bible and some others, it, there's some extra books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How many of y'all have heard of the Apocrypha? Okay. Nice. That's almost everybody. Um, basically, the short answer on this, there, um, there was a council in Trent in 1546 with the Catholic Church, and they decided that those books should be included. Um, but that's 1546. That's centuries and centuries after um, the rest of the Bible had been pretty much set. And the thing is, they just, they're not scripture. They have, they don't pass those four questions. Um, there are a lot of errors in history and in geography. They're theologically inconsistent. Um, we don't have evidence of the Jewish people seeing them as scripture. Jesus and the New Testament doesn't quote them as scripture. They, they're interesting. There's interesting stories. They're, they have literary merits, but not scriptural merits um, by any means at all. So then we also have what is called the Gnostic Gospels, usually. Um, these are just other letters that have appeared, and people have said they should be included, but Gospel we especially... Of Tom, Gospel of Thomas, yeah. Gospel of Judas. And um, if you saw or read The Da Vinci Code, this became really popular when that book and movie was really popular. Um, and that, yeah, just that theory that there are all these books that should have been included but we're left out to silence whomever, minority opinions, women, whatever. Um, but if you read these, they are, again, just completely inconsistent with the gospel. Um, they all claim to be written by apostles or people close to Jesus. Like Tyler just mentioned, the gospel of Judas um, was a big deal a few years ago. Um, there's the gospel of Thomas claims to be written by who we call Doubting Thomas. Um, but they were actually written hundreds of years after those men lived, and so there's no way they could be written by those men, so just even from the title alone, it's a lie. I was wanting to ask and uh, see if you could raise issue that, um, do you think that some people have a problem with inerrancy simply because of the way that certain books are written within their structure, uh, that they kind of get lost within that and the demand of being scientifically right or historically right messes with that and they kind of move away from the fact that when this author is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is a point that they're trying to make. You know, honestly, I, I don't think that as much as I think it's a, um, for a lot of them, it's a, it's a moral reason why they want to believe that the Bible is 
has errors um, because they don't want to, and I'm not talking about all of them by any means, but there's some that don't want to submit to the authority of the Bible. And if they can find seeming errors or contradictions, then that just bolsters their view and their um, uh, their way of life. I won't mention his name, but there was a famous uh, professor and theologian that actually taught at Southwestern at one point who was a, a proponent of inerrancy for most of his life, and then towards the end of his life, he abandoned that doctrine, and uh, the people that knew him knew that his lifestyle didn't match the lifestyle that the Bible was proposing. And, and so I think it was a moral reason why he rejected it. For other people, it's a, you know, it's, I mean, there's a variety of reasons, but I, I don't know, I, I don't think it's really, that would be one of the top two or three reasons, but that's an interesting point, very interesting point. Last question right here. Not necessarily a question, but a comment. Uh, one thing that I was kind of taking the approach on it as far as why we have the Bible as the 66 books we have is kind of in a way that we ask that question, it's almost like we kind of take God out of the equation. And it's just like, you know, God's still active even today. And he was active back then. So we had the 66 books because he's God and that's what he wanted. And so he directed these men to uh, put this together just as he directed the men to write the books themselves. So. That's a great point, Brian. Yeah. Very good point. Good, good way to wrap it up. Um, well, hey, guys, thank you for coming. I'd love to hang around afterwards and chat for a little bit. If you think of things later on, Chris and I would love for you to shoot us an email and we can start a dialogue on that. Um, Guys, we do a lot of things in Life Stage 2. We do a lot of fun things. We do, you know, Wednesday night renovates. We've got music and, and you know, dynamic preaching, and we've got small groups. These roundtable discussions are going to be heavy on content because we believe that there, there needs to be places where you can go deeper and ask the questions that, that are on your mind. And, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to lectures and things like that, there's a lot of content that gets lost. You're not going to remember everything that we talked about tonight. So my encouragement to you is if you're interested to, to go and, and be a learner, you know, go and search out the answers to your questions, starting with the Word of God and then finding other really good sources and, and be, a, be a learner. Be curious about these things. And so um, that's why we do this. Next, next time we meet, we're going to talk about um, why does God allow suffering and evil and... I'm going to start studying tonight if I'm going to be able to answer any question that you guys ask. And I can promise you there'll be some questions that you ask that I will not be able to, be able to answer. Kristen won't be able to answer. So um, there are a lot of things in the Bible that, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. And we have to be okay with that, the mystery element to it. But we're going to, we're going to get after it anyways next time we meet. So um, Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Love you guys, and thank you so much for being here tonight. Father God, we thank you that we have, a, we have your word to us. You didn't leave us stranded down here in this sinful, corrupt, fallen world, world but you gave us your word. Uh, you gave us the truth. You gave us something that we can bank our lives on. Um, 
And this, this Bible is not just a owner's manual like a car where we just, you know, pick different principles that we like and live by those principles, just unrelated facts. This Bible is the story of your creation and the story of your character and your mercy and your grace and ultimately the story of your son, Jesus Christ, who, um, who is the hero of the story um, that's interlaced in the Bible. And so help us to read the Bible, not just, like I said, for facts, but to, to be wrapped up in this amazing story, um, which we call the story of redemption. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.